Chapter 39 of the Story of the World A Simple History for Boys and Girls This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Read by Victor Sheremet The Story of the World A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill Chapter 39. The Story of India During the Seven Years' War in Europe, England won all India for her own. India is a great peninsula in the south of Asia and almost a continent in itself as far as size goes. It is separated from Asia by a chain of mountains in which are some of the highest peaks in the world all through the days of Greece and Rome and the Middle Ages. People did not know much about India. It had a separate life of its own. We have seen how about the time when the Jews were wandering west from Mesopotamia to find a home in the land of Canaan, a branch of the Aryan people to which the Persians and Greeks and Romans and the English all belonged was pouring into India. There were already people in India of another race, darker still than the brown-skinned branch of the Aryan people which now came in and conquered them. The Dravidians, as these people were called, were easily conquered by the Aryans, and soon there were far more Aryans in the north. But in the high table land in the south of India, called the Deccan, there were always more Dravidians than Aryans. And still today, the people of that part of India and of the island of Ceylon to the south of India belong chiefly to these people, who are rather like the Negroes of Africa. The Dravidians were quite savage people and not very intelligent. They believed in wicked spirits and the demons and prayed to them. The Aryans made slaves of the Dravidians. They themselves were divided into three classes or castes. They were the priests or Brahmans who really governed the others, the soldiers and the ordinary people. The people of one caste could not marry with those of another. Not even the working class would marry with the conquered Dravidians. There were divisions again in each caste, and often the people of one division could not marry or even eat with the people of another. This caste system, as it is called, still goes on in India today. Alexander the Great, as we know, led an army into India and won some battles but he never made any real conquest. After this, no outside people troubled India for many years. Sometimes, in the 7th and 8th centuries, when the followers of Mohammed were conquering West India, North Africa and Spain, a few Arabs would cross the Himalayas, but there was never any real conquest until in the year 1004 Anno Domini a Mohammedan leader from a place called Guzni in the country which is now called Afghanistan to the northwest 
of India took a great army and conquered the Punjab as the land round the great river Indus and its tributaries is called. After this there were many Mohammedan invasions and conquests lasting for over 500 years right through the Middle Ages. In this way a new people and the Mohammedan religion found their way into India. This is why today among all the different people of India so many Mohammedans are to be found, even more than there are Hindus who keep to their old religion of the Brahmans. In the early part of the 16th century a new people swarmed into India, a great band of Mongolians from the center of Asia and their leader made himself a ruler of all India. He was called the Great Mogul and had his capital at Delhi. The grandson of this first Mongolian conqueror who ruled when his time came was called Akbar. He was a very fine soldier and a splendid ruler. The country was happy and peaceful under him. He died two years after Queen Elizabeth. And it is strange to think that while in the countries of Europe Protestants and Catholics were being so dreadfully persecuted for their religion, this great Eastern ruler had given toleration to Hindus and Mohammedans equally. The rulers who came after him seemed almost more splendid, but they were very different. They were cruel like so many Eastern kings and emperors and thought very little of murdering anyone who offended them. The greatest of all for the magnificence of his court was the great Mughal Aurangzeb. He had stolen the throne from his father whom he put into prison. To make himself safer he then murdered his own three brothers. The palace of the great Mughal at Delhi was one of the wonders of the world. Before its gates stood two great elephants carved out of stone with immense statues of soldiers on their backs. The great hall of the palace where the Durbar or council met had a roof of pure white marble held up by 30 columns also of marble. The great Mogul had seven magnificent thrones covered with different precious stones. One with pearls, another with rubies, another with diamonds, and so on. But all this splendor could not make Aurangzeb happy. In his last years he was full of fear lest someone should murder him, as he had murdered so many. Soon after his death his great empire broke up into many little states. Most of the rulers pretended to obey the great Mughal at so many races and so many divisions it would be easy for a strong power to come and conquer and that is what happened. We saw how the Portuguese who were the first Europeans to sail to India set up a place at Goa where they could exchange the things they brought from Europe for the spices which they carried back from India. The Portuguese said that they alone of all the people of Europe had the right to trade with India 
but it was not long before the Dutch ships began to trade with the towns on the east coast of India. In time, France and England both set up trading stations in India too. The chief English stations were Calcutta and Madras on the east coast and Bombay on the west. The chief French trading station was Pondicherry, south of Madras. The English and French each paid some money every year to one of the native princes for permission to trade. The Frenchman Dupleix, who was in charge of Pondicherry, was the first to have the idea of how easy it would be for a strong European people to win this great country for themselves. He thought that if only the English could be driven from India, France could win this wonderful prize. The two countries were on opposite sides in the war of the Austrian succession, and Dupleix made this an excuse for attacking the English in Madras. An English fleet was quite near, but was met by a small French fleet under another Frenchman called La Bourdonnais. The fleets fought and thought neither won. The English sailed away, and so Dupleix, with the help of the La Bourdonnais, was able to take Madras, where there were very few men. Most of the English were carried off to Pondicherry, but some escaped to another little station which the English held a few miles south of Madras. Dupleix attacked this station, which was called Fort St. David, but the little band of Englishmen held it bravely, and it was still unconquered when peace was made between France and England at the end of the war of the Austrian succession. Dupleix was ordered to give Madras back to the English, and did so very unwillingly. The Englishmen at the trading stations in India were working for the East India Company, which had been given the rights of world trade with India by Queen Elizabeth. Among the clerks in the company's service at Madras was a young man called Robert Clive. He had been the naughty boy of the family among his brothers and sisters in his English home. He was very passionate and very mischievous when he was a little boy. Once he climbed to the top of a very high steeple, and everyone who saw him was terrified, but he got down safely after all. He went to many schools, but never learned very much. When he was 18, he was sent out to India. He hated being a clerk, and felt very lonely and sad. Twice he tried to shoot himself, but didn't shoot straight, and then he made up his mind that he must be meant for something great. He was one of the men who escaped to Fort St. David from Madras. At last he had found something that he really liked to do, and when he went back to Madras he got the company to have him as a soldier instead of a clerk. There was not peace for very long between the English and French in India. They now hated each other bitterly. Their countries were at peace until the Seven Years' War broke out in 1756. But long before this there was fighting again in India, 
The way in which the French and English found excuses for fighting was to take part in quarrels between the native princes of the states in the deacon which broke out at this time. There were struggles about the crowns of the deacon and of the Carnatic, a province in the deacon. The French took one side and the English the other. The princes from the French were helping were successful at first, and great honor was done to Dupleix. He was dressed in beautiful Mohammedan robes, and a monument was put up with the story of his greatness in four languages. The natives, who had before despised the white men, had begun to see how powerful they really were. In a fight which had broken out between the French and the native prince Dupleyi, with a few French soldiers, had defeated a large army of natives. The Hindus had no idea of training their soldiers, but both French and English had found out by this time that the native soldiers were almost as good as white soldiers. The natives who were trained in this way were called sepoys. When the English in Madras saw how Dupleyi and his friends were succeeding, they sent soldiers to help the town of Trichinopoli, where the native prince called Muhammad Ali, whose side they were taking against the French, was being besieged. Among the soldiers sent to Trichinopoli was Clive, but he saw that not much good could be done there. So he went back to Madras and asked the governor to give him soldiers to attack Arcot, the capital of the Carnatic. Natives were watching Clive with his 200 English soldiers and his 300 sepoys as he marched along the 65 miles to Arcot. A great storm came on, but Clive took no notice of the thunder and lightning and marched steadily on. This seemed wonderful to the natives, and they sent messenger on to Arcot to tell the natives there what a brave enemy was coming against them. The people of Arcot were so frightened that they fled away, and Clive took the empty town without any fighting at all. But soon soldiers were sent from Trichinopoli to attack them. Clive and his men fought them for weeks. The sepoys as well as the white soldiers loved and admired them. The sepoys did a very fine thing. There was not much to eat except a little rice, and they said that the white soldiers might have all the rice, while they could manage quite well with the water in which it was boiled. At last one day the enemy made one last great attack. In the front of the army were great elephants with iron weapons, on their heads to batter down the gates of the town. But when the English fired on them, the elephants turned and fled, trading down and crushing the men of their own army. In an hour the enemy had fled and the great siege of Argot was over. Clive won many victories after this, and soon the English were as powerful in the Carnatic as the French had been. Dupleix was a great statesman, but not a great soldier. He had had no help from France, and in a year or two he was called home in disgrace. He died broken-hearted at the thought 
of the empire he had tried to win for France and which had been taken instead by the English. Meanwhile, Clive had gone back to England for a rest and had been praised and honored by everyone. On the day he landed again in India, a very dreadful thing had happened, though Clive didn't hear of it at once. The Black Hole of Calcutta In Calcutta, so far, all had been peaceful. The English were quite friendly with the ruler or Nawab of Bengal, but in 1756 he died, and a young man called Sirajud Dawula became Nawab. He was really half-mad and dreadfully cruel, very much like the Emperor Nero in character. He had an idea that there were great treasures shut up in the fort of Calcutta and made up his mind to get them. He quarreled with the English and then attacked the fort. The women and children were put safely on ships in the river, all but one lady who would not leave her husband, but the fort was taken and 200 men in it. The Nawab ordered that 146 of them should be shut up in a small room with only two tiny windows. It was called the Black Hole of Calcutta. The night was terribly hot and soon the poor prisoners were crying for air and water. But the native soldiers at first only laughed and held torches to the windows so that they could see the people struggling inside for they were half mad by this time. At last they brought some skin bottles of water, but they were too big to pass between the bars. Some was poured in and a few drops caught, but the fighting and shrieking grew worse than ever, until the sound died down to a moan. In the morning 23 people crawled out when the door was opened. The lady who would not leave her husband was among them, but he was dead inside. When the story of this terrible night reached the other English in India, Clive set out at once with an army of Englishmen and sepoys as before and sailed to Calcutta. He easily conquered the Nawab and got Calcutta back. Siraj Uddaula made many promises and Clive didn't punish him further, but soon he found out that Nawab was trying to get help from a French fort near against the English. So Clive besieged the fort and took it, so ended French power in the north of India. Then Clive went against the Nawab, who had an enormous army at Plassey, 96 miles to the north of Calcutta. Here he won the famous battle of Plassey, with 3,000 men against nearly 60,000. Clive made Mir Jaffa, Sirajud Daula's general, ruler of Bengal but he had to pay a great deal of money to the English. It was not long before he murdered his old master and so revenged the English for the terrible tragedy of the Black Hole of Calcutta. The Battle of Plassey was won in 1757 and William Pitt, who was choosing the men and arranging for the struggle with France and Europe and America, said that Clive was a heaven-born general. Three years later, another English commander, Ayrkut, defeated the French in the south of India at the Battle of Wandewash. After this, France had no further chance in India. But even the best Englishmen were inclined to think of India as a place from which to get money to send home to England. 
The Englishmen in the service of the East India Company were very badly paid. And so, although they were forbidden to trade for themselves, they did so. They were very unjust to the natives and soon there was a great deal of misery in India. There was another massacre at Patna as bad as that of the Black Hole. This was while Clive was away in England. He went back and tried to put things in order and give more justice to the natives. But even Clive had done some things which seemed very unjust to the English at home when they heard of them, for they didn't know how difficult things were in India and how hard it was to be sure that the natives' princes would keep their promises. So when Clive got back to England again, he had to defend himself in Parliament against people who said he had behaved wickedly in India. In the end, Parliament declared that Robert, Lord Clive, did render great and meritorious services to his country, but Clive had been dreadfully upset. His old sadness came on him again, and one day he was found dead. He had killed himself. Still things were very bad in India. The native princes had no longer any power. The Englishmen paid large sums of money to them and they had to be content with that. All the taxes collected from the people were now paid to the East India Company, but the Englishmen didn't really understand what was going on and the native collectors took much more from the people than they should have done and kept a great deal of the money for themselves. The people grew poorer and poorer. Then there was a great famine. The people were starving and became as thin as skeletons. Thousands died and their bodies lay unburied and then plague broke out. At last Warren Hastings, who was in the service of the East India Company and had fought in the Battle of Plassey, was sent out as governor. He was like Dupleyi, a statesman, more than a soldier, and he did all he could to make things better. But even then, things were still very bad. Much trouble came through the English not understanding the customs of the Hindus. Once a man who had cheated the English very badly was put to death. In those days, stealing or cheating was still punished by death even in England. But this man was a Brahman, and to the natives it seemed a terrible thing that one of the priestly castes should be killed. At last, people in England began to think that the East India Company should not have the government of India. And the president was sent out to rule India for the government at home. In the year 1788, an attack was made on Warren Hastings and he was tried before Parliament for misrule in India. Edmund Burke, a famous Irish member of Parliament and a splendid speaker, began with a speech in which he described the terrible sufferings of the natives and the awful behavior of Hastings. People wept while Burke spoke, and there was a terrible feeling against Hastings, but as time went on, people began to understand the truth of the case, and at the end of seven years Hastings were declared not guilty. He lived a happy, cheerful life in his English country home until he died when he was 87 years old. As time went on, England got power over all the native princes of India. 
Many of them made treaties with the English by which their soldiers were put under British officers and were paid by the English. At the same time, they generally gave up some of their land altogether to the English. The Indian Mutiny In the year 1857, there was a terrible rebellion of the native soldiers all over the north of India. It was partly a religious movement. Some new guns were being used and the cartridges fired from them were greased with fat. The end of the cartridge had to be beaten off by the soldiers. Now the Hindus and the Mohammedans were forbidden by their religions to touch the fat of cows or pigs. It was now said that the cartridges were greased with the fat of these animals. The soldiers were told that this was not true, but they would not believe the English. At last they were told that the greased cartridges would not be used anymore. But then they began to think that the shiny paper in which other cartridges were wrapped was also polished by the same grease and the rebellion broke out. All over the north of India the native soldiers attacked the English, men, women and children. There was a terrible massacre at Kanpur and Lucknow was only saved after a terrible siege. The English had been taken completely by surprise, but the rebellion was soon put down. There were not many English soldiers, but many of the natives remained faithful, and when they took the sepoys prisoners, it would not have been easy to carry them with them. The English were dreadfully angry, too, at the thought of their women and children, and were not sorry to kill their prisoners. After the mutiny, it was thought better that India should be taken altogether from the East India Company, and so that company came to an end at last. Since then India has been ruled by a viceroy or representative of the king or queen of England. England now owns two-thirds of all the land of India and the other third is ruled by native princes under her. The king is called Emperor of India. In India the English people have done very wonderful things which the natives could never have done for themselves. Railways, roads and bridges have been built and it is now easy to get from one part of India to another. In old days, when a time of dry weather came, the land was burned up and there was famine, but the English have made canals in which water which has been stored up can be carried to the fields in dry weather. The population of India grows very quickly, almost too quickly for it sometimes seems that the land could never give food for all. But now the English have set up factories and many of the people leave the country parts and work in the towns. Bombay is famous for its manufacture of color stuffs and muslin. Some people are even afraid that the cotton goods made in India will take the place of those made in Manchester and the great towns of Lancashire and that the cotton trade of that county will be ruined. These cotton goods and Indian tea and wheat are bought by the countries of Europe. Many of the higher class of natives come now to be educated in England, and some of these young students think that India should be governed by its own people. The English are allowing some of the educated people to help in the government of their country, 
But though it may seem strange that a little country like England should govern a continent like India with its millions and millions of people, it must be remembered that these people of India are of many different races, that they don't seem able to join together in any way, and that if England or some other European country hadn't interfered there, might have been fighting and misery for centuries yet. On the whole, the people of India and the natives' princes honor and respect Great Britain, and when King George and Queen Mary paid a visit to India in the year 1912, there was a great gathering of princes at the Durbar to do them honor. End of chapter 39